When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stephen A. Cohen has always been interested in baseball. In 2012, the hedge fund manager purchased a small stake in the New York Mets, and in a separate transaction, he nearly bought the Los Angeles Dodgers. But ever since he was young, Cohen has been more interested in something else. He really wanted to be rich, and he thought he was smarter than everyone else. That's Sheila Kolhatkar. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of a book about how Steve Cohen became one of the richest men on Wall Street. You know, he didn't seem like someone who agonized about what he was going to do with his life or what his calling was or what gift he had for the world. He just wanted to go out and make a lot of money. Cohen founded his own investment firm in 1992 with around $23 million in seed money. He called it SAC Capital Advisors in honor of his own initials. And he didn't just hire Wall Street regulars to work for him. Dozens of Ivy League educated, mostly young men, computer programmers, people with MBAs, people with PhDs in microbiology. And they spend their days trying to figure out what a company's earnings report is going to say within a penny. As Cole Hatkar learned, Cohen's firm wasn't exactly a friendly place. The first time I interviewed someone who had worked for him there, uh, this gentleman told me that every Sunday night he would cry about the thought of going back to the office the next day. It was a very intense, high-pressure sink-or-swim environment. Those who swam were richly rewarded, even by Wall Street standards. By the mid-2000s, some of Cohen's top employees earned $100 million a year. Some years, Cohen himself reportedly took home more than a billion dollars. And Cohen's spending habits became as legendary as his earnings. As for his art, Cohen recently snapped up an early version of Jasper John's signature flag painting for an estimated $110 million. Cohen's managers made money by trading on information. Their entire job was finding stuff out about companies that not a lot of people knew and betting accordingly. On Wall Street, and at SAC in particular, there was a term for this kind of information, edge. In finance and in investing, it is not considered a bad word. It's considered a very sort of pedestrian description of what you're bringing to your job. So it represents the special thing that you know, the special reason you have confidence in this trade you want to make. Cohen craved edge. The rule at SAC was that the boss always got the first bite at the apple, meaning that if you had something really good, you gave it to him first, so he could trade on it with his own personal account. In exchange, he didn't ask how his employees found the information they were using to make him and SAC's investors rich. Ethical sourcing was not high on Cohen's list of priorities. Cohen set up a system in which his traders delivered him their investment recommendations not with an explanation, but with a number between 1 and 10. He called this a conviction rating. A rating of 9 or 10 meant that they were very, very certain that they'd found information that would result in a winning trade. 
in reality, that just insulated him from the source of this information. He just wanted the information. He did not want to know where it came from. And of course, that sets a tone. It's tone at the top. I mean, that's true in every kind of organization. If the person in charge is not bothering with something, then everyone below is going to take their cues from that person. Around 2007, one of SAC's portfolio managers, Matthew Martoma, started giving extremely high conviction ratings, usually nines, to two drug companies that were conducting clinical trials of a new Alzheimer's medication. Even Martoma's co-workers suspected that he'd acquired the kind of non-public information he wasn't legally allowed to trade on. But people at SAC didn't call this insider trading. They had another term for it, one that Cole Hatkar used as the title of her book about Steve Cohen, Black Edge. I had never heard that before. And uh, what it was intended to convey was edge that was uh, over the line, that was had crossed over even beyond the gray zone where they all operated most of the time into black, clearly illegal, impermissible information. And they were speculating that that was the only possible explanation for his level of confidence in what he was saying. That confidence led Cohen's firm to make $276 million in profits and avoided losses off the drug companies. The government decided to investigate, and in 2012, Martoma was indicted for insider trading. The U.S. attorney for New York's Southern District, Preet Bharara, charged Martoma with securities fraud and conspiracy. Former SAC portfolio manager Matthew Martoma is heading to prison. In New York today, he was sentenced to nine years for engaging what authorities describe as the most lucrative insider trading scheme in the country's history. It's one of the stiffest sentences handed down for insider trading. Martoma refused to cooperate with the government against Cohen. He paid a steep price, and his former boss didn't. There was a very powerful moment after the trial ended when his parents, who had been silent through this whole trial, they sort of had an outburst on the courtroom steps and they said, you know, the man who made all the money from this is is sailing around uh, on a yacht. Preet Bharara said that insider trading at SAC Capital was, quote, substantial, pervasive, and on a scale without precedent in the history of hedge funds. But Barrara didn't have enough evidence to charge Steve Cohen himself because he couldn't prove that Cohen had known specifically that Martoma or any of his other employees had provided him with illegal information. Cohen's firm faced some other legal probes, but Cohen would put an end to them with his checkbook. One of the big disappointments of this whole case was the way it ended up. And the way it ended up was that a very, very wealthy man, a multi-billionaire, wrote a check and settled his legal troubles. He paid $1.8 billion in fines and penalties to settle his criminal case against his firm and his SEC case. But that was almost an inconsequential amount of money to Steve Cohen. I asked Cole Hadkar why someone who is already one of the richest people in America would incentivize the kind of risky, even criminal edge-seeking that Cohen seemed to expect of his employees. My strong sense after speaking to all these people for all these months was that he needs to win. He needs to win in any situation he finds himself in. He needed to win over everyone else. It was almost pathological with him, I think. Steve Cohen didn't even try to lay low or put on a show of humility after his escape. In fact, just before Martoma was due to report to prison, Cohen did the opposite. 
Steve Cohen uh, went off and purchased a Giacometti sculpture for $101 million at auction. And he could have purchased that sculpture anonymously, but he didn't. He wanted it known that he was still out there spending $100 million on a piece of art. I think it was another way of Steve Cohen telegraphing to the world that he thinks that he won. The thing is, Steve Cohen did win, right? In 2014, he started a new firm called Point72, although it was basically just SAC with a name change. As of 2020, Point72 is said to manage more than $17 billion. He just went on as if nothing had happened. And I think that sends a very clear message. If you don't really apply meaningful consequences to someone leading an organization that gets in this kind of trouble, then it's not going to work as a deterrent to others. I hate to ask you to sum up all of your work on this into one moral or lesson, but is there one? I mean, one of the main observations I took away from this story is that we unfortunately live in a world now where it is possible to be rich enough to be above the law. And that's what this story illustrates pretty well. I'm Ben Ryder, and this is the conclusion of the two-part finale of The Edge. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. Alex, how do you feel about that there are those who want to say this this taints or damages what you guys did in 2017? The commissioner made his report, um, made his decision. The Astros made their decision. And... um, That's Astros third baseman Alex Bregman being forced to speak to reporters at the Astros Fan Fest in January of 2020. It was five days after the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, released his findings on the Astros sign-stealing scandal. Bregman was in some ways the face of the Astros. This was especially true after they made their heel turn in 2018. In a sport that was still largely conservative and proudly modest, Bregman stood out by being irreverent and brash. Does Floyd Mayweather fight the first fight of the night, or does he, is he the main event? I mean, does Tiger Woods tee off at 8 a.m.? It's about time the, uh, the show strows, uh play on primetime television. So... But now Alex Bregman was barely saying anything at all. There was one phrase he kept repeating over and over in response to reporters' questions. Um, you know, the commissioner came out with a report. Like I said, the commissioner made his report. Um, the commissioner made his report. And, uh, Do you have any plans to address this? Um, the commissioner made his report. Uh, Soon, you could buy T-shirts with that line. The commissioner made his report. 
printed in the shape of an asterisk. Alex Bregman wasn't the only one being quiet. Outside a few highly scripted media events, the Astros players largely avoided commenting on what they'd done. There were some exceptions, like Carlos Correa, the shortstop who had proposed to his girlfriend on the field after the Astros won the 2017 World Series. Correa admitted to using the trash can scheme during the regular season that year, but swore to Ken Rosenthal that the World Series against the Dodgers had been one fair. So you guys did not have their signs? No, no. I, I'm telling you, Ken, the, the World Series games are too important to use easy signs. There are Morse codes out there. I mean, there are signs that, that nobody can get. We earned that championship, Ken. We didn't steal it. We're here now in spring training, and everybody is talking about the Houston Astros and what we did in 2017. We got to take that on the chin, Ken. Another player who spoke up was Evan Gaddis, who retired from the Astros after 2018 and went on a podcast hosted by one of his old teammates with the Braves. We didn't look at our moral compass and say, yeah, this is right. It was almost like paranoia warfare or something. But what we did was wrong. Like, don't get it twisted. I'm not asking for sympathy. I understand that it's not good enough to say sorry. I get it. But mostly, the Astros clammed up. And they largely continued to throughout the 2020 season. For this podcast, I individually reached out to a long list of Astros players to ask for interviews, to hear their side of the story. Carlos Correa, Alex Bregman, Evan Gaddis, Justin Verlander, Carlos Beltran, Josh Reddick, Dallas Keuchel, Brian McCann, Colin McHugh. The list goes on. Plus coaches like A.J. Hinch and Alex Cora. None of them agreed to talk. Most didn't even respond. I don't know for sure if these players are being gagged from above, the way they were after 2017's Red Sox smartwatch incident. Maybe they just don't see any upside in talking about it. In February of 2020, Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, sat for an interview with ESPN to address the Astros scandal and its fallout. The interview lasted 45 minutes, but to many people, there were 32 seconds that mattered. 32 seconds in which Manfred explained why he hadn't stripped the Astros of their 2017 World Series trophy. The idea of, you know, an asterisk or asking for a piece of metal back seems, you know, sort of a futile act. People are always know that there was something about the 2017 World Series uh, that was different, and they're going to know that because whether we made every decision right or wrong, we undertook a really thorough investigation, and we had the intestinal fortitude to put out there the facts we found, even though they weren't very pretty. That the commissioner had referred to his sport's most coveted trophy as a piece of metal didn't go over well. A headline on one blog read, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred spit in the face of all baseball fans on Sunday, and a popular Twitter hashtag, Fire Manfred, gathered steam. Players like Justin Turner of the Dodgers were particularly unhappy. Calling the World Series trophy a piece of metal, uh... I mean, I don't know if the commissioner's ever won anything in his life. Maybe he hasn't, but the reason every guy's in this room, the reason every guy is, you know, working out all off season and showing up to camp early and putting in all the time and effort is specifically for that trophy. 
which, by the way, is called the Commissioner's Trophy. At this point, the only thing devaluing that trophy is that it says Commissioner on it. On one level, Manfred might have been right. Moving a trophy from one ballpark to another, even putting an asterisk on the Astros' title, wouldn't change people's memories or their experiences. But the real message from Manfred was, we've dealt with this. Let's move on. That was also the theme of a press conference the Astros had held a few days earlier when they arrived in Florida for spring training with a new manager and a new GM in tow. That media session had gone even more poorly than Manfred's, particularly for the team's owner, Jim Crane. Welcome to the start of spring training. I'm going to go over a few remarks and then I'm going to turn it over to our players. You'll remember Jim Crane from earlier in this series. When Jeff Luno was interviewing for his job as GM and asked what limitations would be placed on his vision for the Astros, Crane was the one who slid a blank piece of paper across his desk. And when a team of Clydesdales trotted out onto the field before the Astros' 2018 home opener, it was Crane who sat on the wagon they pulled, delivering the World Series trophy, that piece of metal, to a sellout crowd. Now, at the opening of spring training in 2020, Crane's audience wasn't so adoring as he dutifully apologized for what his team had done. I want to say again how sorry our team is for what happened. I want to also repeat that this will never happen again on my watch. That might have been the press conference's high point. Then Crane made a startling assertion about the effect the Astros' sign-stealing had had on the field. You know, our opinion is, um, you know, that this didn't impact the game. We had a good team. We won the World Series, and we'll leave it at that. And then, not even a minute later, he backtracked. Did you say you feel like this didn't impact the game? And what do you mean by that? I, I didn't say it didn't impact the game. Basically, you know, as the commissioner said in his report, he's not going to go backwards. Um, it's hard to determine how it impacted the game, if it impacted the game, and that's where we're going to leave it. While Crane again credited himself for going above and beyond the league's penalties by firing Jeff Luno and A.J. Hinch, he also fully absolved one person of any responsibility for the scandal. Uh, clearly, the report states that I didn't know about it. Um, had I known about it, I certainly would have done something about it. Um, I did, did hire uh, Jeff. And I think Jeff did a lot of great things for the organization over the years. Um, I, you know, no, I don't think I should be held accountable. I'm here to correct. Here's Crane going, I, I just didn't know. I wasn't really involved in that. And basically paying a fine and not sitting there and owning up to it. And then I look back to what had happened to him with his businesses, and I went, yeah, this is pretty much par for the course. That's Maury Brown, a reporter for Forbes magazine who's been covering the business of baseball for 20 years. Back in 2011, when Jim Crane was in negotiations to buy the Astros, Brown wrote a long article examining Crane's freight and logistics empire. Remember this? At Crane Worldwide Logistics, we pride ourselves in the knowledge that we put our clients first at all times. The context of Brown's piece was whether Crane's history might dissuade baseball's other owners from approving him to join their ranks, which Crane needed for his offer to go through. So... Is it fair to say he was a controversial candidate to become an owner by 2011? Oh, he was very much that. Brown chronicled some sordid incidents from Crane's past. In the year 2000, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission produced a 104-page investigation into Crane's company, Eagle USA Air Freight. 
They alleged that Crane had directed his managers not to hire minorities because, quote, once you hire blacks, you can never fire them. The investigation also alleged that Crane discriminated against women. He warned managers not to, you know, bring women in that might have been of childbearing age because, you know, they worried about productivity issues. I mean, right now, I mean, those are the things he was investigating in. If you did this now in the Me Too age or during Black Lives Matter, I mean, it would be it would be hyper scandalous. Crane has always denied the EEOC's allegations. But after a class-action employment discrimination lawsuit, Crane's company ultimately agreed to a $9 million settlement, although a judge later returned two-thirds of it. But Crane's problems didn't end there. Starting in 2005, the Department of Justice went after his company four times for war profiteering, specifically for price-fixing, overcharging the government, and paying kickbacks related to the shipping of military supplies to Iraq. The company ended up paying nearly $10 million in settlements and fines. But Crane himself avoided being personally implicated. He said he'd known nothing about any of the war profiteering. But one of his executives couldn't say the same. The guy that was the regional manager, I want to say he spent 30 months in jail and was fined something like $10,000. Major League Baseball did take much longer than usual, months, not weeks, to approve Crane's bid to buy the Astros. But ultimately, there was one part of it that was very hard to overlook. The part where Crane was offering to pay more than $600 million. It was the second largest club sale at the time. Then once you get that money and there's an owner that wants to allow that person to purchase a club, it's very difficult for them to block it. There has to be something really egregious. I mean, it's just not a lot of people walking around with that kind of coin these days. And finally, our crazy money story of the day comes from Houston. The Astros were sold to businessman Jim Crane for $680 million. Why is it crazy? Well, the Houston Astros are in last place. They have only 15 wins for the season, 15 and 25, $680 million. It was nearly a decade after Crane bought the Astros that he found himself and his team engulfed by scandal. Crane wasn't the only one saying he didn't bear any responsibility for the Astros' cheating. When Commissioner Manfred issued his report in January of 2020, he made a point of absolving Crane in the first paragraph. Manfred wrote, At the outset, I can say that our investigation revealed absolutely no evidence that Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, was aware of any of the conduct described in this report. Manfred didn't stop there. He gave credit to Crane for fully supporting the investigation and providing unfettered access to any and all information requested. Also, in case anyone wasn't sure if they should be mad at the owner of the Astros, Manfred added an emotional accent. Crane is extraordinarily troubled and upset by the conduct of members of his organization. One person who took note of Manfred's emphasis was Jeff Luno. So he was, he was definitely absolved right up front. You'll have to ask Rob why he did that. I've got my ideas. It did happen on my watch. It happened on Jim's watch. We were leading the organization and where does the buck stop? Obviously it stopped with, with AJ and with me. And I'm bummed that it happened on my watch. What does it mean for something to happen on someone's watch? What does it mean for a leader to bear responsibility for what the people under him do? Rob Manfred actually put forward a theory about that in his report. 
He talked about the insular culture that valued and rewarded results over other considerations. He talked about the environment that allowed the sign-stealing schemes to have occurred, as well as the Brandon Taubman Clubhouse incident and the club's contemptible response to it. But Manfred was careful to limit his diagnosis. This was not an Astros problem, only a problem with the Astros' most important department, the Baseball Operations Department. Which was why Jeff Luno, who ran the Baseball Operations Department, was being punished. Luno, predictably, takes issue with Manfred's theory. I will tell you that we did value results. We wanted to win. We wanted to win championships. We wanted to create a good team in baseball, and we did it. But certainly the CEO, the owner, the the active leader is involved in setting the tone for the culture. And Jim is an active leader. He does set the tone. He's very involved in decisions on both the business side and the baseball side. I ran every major decision by him. You know, very rarely did he say he didn't like something, but um, he was actively involved. Nothing happened without him knowing about it, without me consulting him about it. He was involved in the Osuna trade. We worked together. Someone else who worked for the Astros spoke to me anonymously about Crane's influence over how his organization operated. They told me, in terms of the commissioner citing the ways employees are treated, that's Jim Crane. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Crane's really good at running an efficient, profitable business. Look at Amazon. It's the way the world works. Very lean, ruthless, unsentimental. Jeff, being his manager, would carry it out. So why did Rob Manfred go to such pains to avoid assigning blame to Jim Crane, even as he made an implicit argument about how an organization's culture is set by its leaders? To understand that, I think you have to consider who holds the power in a sports league like Major League Baseball. On the surface, you'd think it's the league's commissioner, who we see making new rules, handing down punishments for breaking them, taking arrows when things go wrong. The commissioner seems like an independent, impartial figure whose job is to look out for the best interests of the sport. But in reality, that's not a commissioner's job. And according to Maury Brown, the journalist who wrote about Jim Crane buying the Astros, it never really has been. These days, baseball's commissioner is more like a CEO, serving at the pleasure of 30 extremely wealthy shareholders. Their job is to work at the behest of the owners and to keep them profitable and to keep them relevant. They are also stewards of a game, and they will say that they, of course, that is important, and it is, right? But look, I mean, at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is continue to make them money. Um, I think that we view the commissionership as this thing where they have this absolute power, that they really largely can do whatever they want and are honestly doing everything in the interest of the fans and run with impunity, and that has never been the case. But the last guy that really tried to do this and go against the owners was Faye Vincent. My name is Francis T. Vincent Jr. I have a nickname, Faye, F-A-Y, without the E. And I am 82 years old, and I was commissioner of baseball from 1989 to 1992. And you see the trophy. This is what it's all about. Commissioner Faye Vincent will make the award of the championship trophy. Commissioner? Walter, it's my great privilege to present this trophy to you. It's been a remarkable World Series in many respects. Faye Vincent became baseball's commissioner when his predecessor died of a heart attack just five months into the job. Vincent would eventually acquire a nickname, one that would double as the title of his memoir, The Last Commissioner. 
the argument being that I was the end of the line of someone who was more or less independent. That is somebody who, yes, I work for the owners, but I was my own person. I obviously had considerable independence. Even though Vincent did work for the owners, he prided himself on being more of a public trustee. He once even punished an owner, banning the Yankees' George Steinbrenner for paying a gambler to dig up dirt on one of his players. This sad episode is now over. My decision in this case and this result will serve, I trust, to vindicate once again the important responsibility of the commissioner to preserve and protect our noble game. Faye Vincent shared something with the commissioners who'd come before and after him, a strategy he'd learned in the business world for dealing with problems. When I worked at Coca-Cola, they said every once in a while in business, they have to have a public execution. Because when you have a public execution of somebody who's done something wrong, you correct everybody else's sensitivity because you see whoever it was that was executed was executed. Steinbrenner was one of Vincent's executions. Another was a Yankees pitcher named Steve Howe. Vincent banned Howe in 1992 for repeated drug-related offenses. It showed that baseball was taking its players' drug use, particularly their cocaine use, seriously. Discipline can send a message about what's acceptable and what's not. Other examples include Shoeless Joe Jackson, banned with his teammates for allegedly conspiring to fix the 1919 World Series, and Pete Rose for gambling. This issue has never been about Pete Rose. It was always about what's the right thing for baseball. And when the public says Rose belongs in the Hall of Fame, they're confusing what's going on with this deterrent with Pete Rose's personal situation. Those are two entirely separate issues. Later, there was Alex Rodriguez, suspended for steroids, and even Chris Correa, banned for computer hacking. In 2020, Jeff Luno and A.J. Hinch joined that list. This time, the offense was using technology to steal signs. Whatever ambiguity there might have been, the Astros' decapitation showed other teams what could happen to them. That's the Faye Vincent theory of executions. They serve as a deterrent. But making an example out of someone can be useful for another reason, too. It sends the message that the problem has been dealt with. The easiest solution for Rob Manfred, for MLB, for any sport commissioner, really, is to try and pin it all on one team. Um, Even better, if you can pin it on a couple of individuals on that team, then you basically say, look, we found the problem, we eradicated it, and it's no longer a problem. Anything beyond that starts to suggest it's a systemic problem. We know it's a systemic problem. You and I do, Ben. I think anybody in the industry does. MLB does, too. But... um, they don't really want to talk about it. And, and I think uh, it's, it's a lot easier just to say it was one team. It's a good way to uh, sort of put it in one corner and move on. In January of 2020, before the commissioner had even finished investigating the Astros, the Athletics Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick dropped another bombshell. The journalists who'd broken the Astros' trash can scheme story reported that another team had used its video replay room to steal signs in 2018. A team that certainly knew the rules by then, because it had already been punished for breaking them in 2017. Here's how the Red Sox were quote-unquote cheating. 
The Red Sox have a video room right off the dugout at Fenway Park. So what was happening in 2018, they had video cameras that were fixed on the catcher's signs. And they would decipher the catcher's signs when there was somebody on base. As Rosenthal and Drellick reported, Red Sox employees would then pass their opponent's sign sequences from the video room to the dugout. And they would tell anybody who got on second base, that's the sequence, and you can relay it to the batter at home plate. Just like the Astros, the Red Sox had cheated during a season in which they'd end up winning the World Series. And their manager that year? Former Astros bench coach Alex Cora, one of the ringleaders of Houston's sign-stealing scheme. The athletic story made it clear that the Red Sox and Astros were not the only teams to use a system like this. The allure of video was just too tempting to resist. The story quoted one anonymous player saying, it was like having an open book test and the open book is right there next to you and the teacher says, don't look at the book. I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna defend the Red Sox. Is that really cheating or is that gamesmanship? Now what the Astros did is cheating because they're banging a trash can to tell you what pitch is coming because they just picked it up on a sign there. There's no artistry to it. The Red Sox cheating didn't appear to be as brazen as the Astros. It was basically code breaker without a trash can. But the rule they broke, prohibiting the use of technology to steal signs, was the same. The commissioner had little choice but to open another investigation. The process took three months, in part because of the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic that also delayed the start of the 2020 regular season. But when Manfred released his Red Sox report in April, it looked remarkably mild. So the Red Sox really get the uh, proverbial slap on the wrist. They determined that the primary culprit was not the front office, nor was it manager Alex Cora or the players, but the team's video replay system operator. His name is J.T. Watkins, and he has been banned through the 2020 playoffs. Alex Cora has been banned through 2020, but only for his conduct with the Astros. It felt like Manfred was trying to de-escalate the whole issue of sign-stealing in baseball, like he didn't want to do anything dramatic the way he had back in January when he suspended Luno and Hinch. Jeff Luno couldn't believe it. They were caught twice. They were caught in 2017, and then they were caught again in 2018. And that's recidivism. I don't hear anybody asking how the front office there could not know. The only people that got punished were a video person, and they pretty much let everybody else off the hook. So it doesn't pass the sniff test for me or for a lot of baseball fans as well. You probably don't remember the second half of the headline from the November 2019 article in The Athletic that broke the news of the Astros' trash can scheme. But it positioned the Astros' violations as, quote, part of a much broader issue for Major League Baseball. The article also stated that the player who had led the Astros' scheme had benefited from sign-stealing with a previous team. That player was Carlos Beltran, who had played for the Yankees from 2014 to 2016. And yet, as far as we know, since the end of the 2019 season, no team other than the Astros and Red Sox has been investigated for sign-stealing by Major League Baseball, let alone been punished for it. According to Maury Brown, that makes sense when you think about the commissioner's true job. And that's the fine line that, that Rob Manfred's walking here. 
Like, how far do you really want to dig? How far do you really want to look? Because I don't think that if you really wanted to look and you really wanted to dig, you'd be happy with what you found. There's one thing I heard from almost everybody I talked to for this podcast. It's a little glib in the face of so much death and loss, but it's also a widely shared thought. It's that if there was any group of people in the world who could find any silver lining in the COVID-19 pandemic, it was the Houston Astros players. Even though they weren't officially punished for stealing signs, the Astros players were set to endure a season during which they'd be seen as something worse than heels flat-out villains. They would be booed wherever they went. But then, because of COVID, they got to play in ballparks that were entirely empty of fans. I think the Astros get a free pass this year because there's no fans in the stands. I think that's where the abuse would have come from. Uh, But they deserve it. They got caught. During spring training, some rival players tried to make the Astros pay for what they'd done. Some of the sport's biggest names, guys who were normally pretty mild-mannered, spoke out against the Astros, denouncing them in stark moral terms. Like the Angels' Mike Trout. It's sad for baseball. Um, you know, it's tough. You know, they, they cheated. And um, a lot of guys lost respect for some of the guys. And, you know, it's, it seems like every day something new comes out. So. And the Yankees' Aaron Judge. I was pretty mad, pretty upset, you know, to know that we were probably, you know, cheated out of a possibility of, you know, making it to the World Series because, you know, you you cheated and you you didn't earn it. It was rare for players to so openly blast their fellow players, which suggested two things. One, the rest of the league's players felt that the Astros hadn't been properly punished. And two, the Astros had crossed a widely understood ethical and normative line, not just broken a rule. Even if the use of replay rooms to send signs into second base was quietly accepted around the league, the trash can scheme was seen by the Astros' fellow players as beyond the pale. The league and the players' union tried to bring closure to the matter when the 2020 regular season finally began in July by agreeing to a few new anti-sign-stealing rules, the strictest ones yet. Replay rooms were locked down, in-game video study was essentially banned, and the commissioner gained the explicit power to suspend players who illegally stole signs. But new rules didn't undo the past or make people forget it. As the season got underway, it became clear that even if there was no booing from the stands, there was serious hostility toward the Astros on the field. The most notable instance of it involved a Dodgers reliever named Joe Kelly. Here's Joe Kelly for his second outing this year. In his first one on Saturday, he threw... In a game in Houston in late July, Kelly threw a 96-mile-an-hour fastball behind Alex Bregman's head. Just get away from him? I think that one slipped. Then, a few batters later, he threw at Carlos Correa's head. Look out. That was an off-speed pitch that spills him. Correa now looking out there. Not to say, you're trying to throw at me, but to say, man, control it. And then he struck him out. Swing and a miss from Correa to get out of the inning. Oh, Joe. Joe Kelly strutting his way off. As Kelly walked off the mound, he stuck out his bottom lip, a pouty face, and said, Nice swing, bitch. He and Correa traded expletives, and their teammates rushed onto the field. All right, so the benches have cleared. And we'll do our best to maintain social distancing while still sending a message. I would definitely think that the 
or cheater has been used at least a dozen times. Kelly was suspended for eight games, later reduced to five. And on a teammate's podcast, he explained why he'd done what he'd done. You get immunity and then you rat like a little bitch. That's the problem I have. When you take someone's livelihood and take money away from their family who's done hard work to save your own ass, that's what I don't like. Cheating, they cheated. Everyone knows they're cheaters. They know they're cheaters. It's over. That's been there done with. But now they mess it up by going and ruining other people's lives. So they fucked it up twice. Kelly wasn't speaking as an altogether disinterested outsider. In speaking up on behalf of the guys who had taken the fall for the Astros, he was defending guys he knew, like Alex Cora, who'd been Kelly's manager in Boston in 2018, and Jeff Luno, who drafted him with the Cardinals in 2009. Joe's a passionate guy, and I think he believes what he believes. And, you know, I don't think it was right for him to do what he did against our team. But I think some of the words that came out of his mouth have, have some, some truth to it. And I think he sees it for what it is. I mean, this was a situation, a lot of people involved and, and not everybody got, you know, punished or even reprimanded appropriately. And, you know, that's his opinion. And I, I share that to a certain extent. I noticed a certain phrase in Luno's answer, one he'd used repeatedly during our many hours of interviews. You've said our team a couple of times, right? Referring to the Astros. Do you still feel like, you know, it's your team? I still watch games and, you know, I root for Yuli and I, I root for Altuve and Bregman and Springer. And these are my players. I spent eight years getting this group together. I feel a kinship uh, with them. I don't feel a kinship or, you know, a- any real affection towards the front office and specifically the ownership and how I've been treated. It, it's just, uh, it's a shame because I did a lot for them. And, um, you know, most of them haven't even reached out and asked me how I'm doing or anything like that. So it's... Uh, That's been hard. Those hard feelings persist. In early November of 2020, two days before we released this episode, Luno sued the Astros in Texas District Court. The suit alleged that the team breached Luno's contract when it fired him for cause, costing him more than $22 million in guaranteed salary. So far, there's one person who's largely evaded any punishment for the Astros scandal— from the commissioner's office, certainly, but even from people like Joe Kelly. And it's the same one who's benefited the most from the Astros' success, the team's principal owner, Jim Crane. Jim and the owners you know, bought the team for $600 million in 2011, and in the eight years that I was there, it's probably worth $2 billion now with no debt. Uh, they had a lot of debt when they bought it. A lot of that appreciation, a lot of that value creation was due to the baseball operations' success, and that was led by me. Maury Brown, the Forbes reporter, thinks the Astros are worth even more than that. Could he sell it right now for $2.5 I think he easily could. So, look, I mean, he's sitting on a huge asset. And that is why these guys hold on to them like grim death. Jim Crane did have to pay the maximum allowable fine of $5 million. It's less than the annual salary that a decent reliever like Joe Kelly makes, a mere rounding error in a business worth 500 times that, and presumably an amount he instantly recouped when he tore up Luno's contract. Sure, he lost a few draft picks, but Crane kept his players and his championship ring and the entirety of his team's value. Maury, did the fallout of the sign-stealing scandal materially affect Crane or the Astros in any real way? No. 
During the 2020 regular season, Crane's players didn't have to contend with hate from opposing fans, but they struggled with injuries. They lost their best pitcher, Justin Verlander, their best power bat, Jordan Alvarez, and their closer, Roberto Asuna. But when October and the playoffs arrived, they caught fire. In the air, center field, Correa's watching, this is back, and it's gone! It's a walk-off home run! Carlos Correa! Astros win! Correa said the massive chip they were all carrying on their shoulders was motivating them. I know a lot of people are mad. I know a lot of people don't want to see us here. But what are they going to say now? You know, we're a solid team. We play great baseball. We won a series on the road in Minnesota. So what are they going to say now? With every Astros win, the country hated them more. Including, bizarrely, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, who brought them up during the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Um, I'd like to pivot from uh, constitutional structure to baseball for a minute, if you will bear with me. And I'd like to talk about um, the Houston Astros, who are miserable cheaters. Sorry, Cornyn uh, and Cruz, but I think all baseball fans know that the Houston Astros cheat. They, they steal signs. Uh, they bang on cans. They've done a whole bunch of miserable things historically, and they, they deserve to be punished probably more than they have been. Um, but tonight the Astros reached the American League Championship Series for the fourth straight time. They lost the first three games against the Rays, but they won the next three, putting them one win away from another World Series. In the end, they didn't quite get there. Last hope for the Astros. And on the first pitch, in the air, right field. That is playable. Coming in, Margot, and that's it! The Tampa Bay Rays have won the American League pennant! Still, Astros fans loved it. They felt besieged, but also vindicated, as if the 2020 postseason proved that the team had never needed to cheat to be good. Meanwhile, the man who gained the most from it was nowhere to be seen. While the players had to stand up for themselves night after October night, we can't find a single quote or video clip from Jim Crane, who also didn't respond to my request for an interview. Jim Crane's Astros were once an outlier in baseball an organization that was run top to bottom as a hypermodern, data-driven big business using bleeding-edge competitive strategies borrowed from Wall Street. But these days, that profile doesn't make them stand out quite as much. Here again is Maury Brown. For some strange reason, we, we look at Major League Baseball clubs as a community asset, that we don't look at them as big business. I mean, baseball is a $10.7 billion industry. And yet somehow we still think it's run by, you know, people that are mom and pop and doing this because they love baseball. It is not that way. So in the, the question for those that look at the Houston Astros or any other club is, is this just part and parcel with the people that own clubs now? In fact, even as many of baseball's teams resented the Astros' unconventional ways, they wanted to catch up with them. They wanted the Astros' technology, like the high-speed cameras they used to train their players. Luno says that when the Astros first started buying the cameras, the manufacturer told him they represented most of his sales in the world of sports. And it only took about two years for the rest of the industry to figure it out and start copying. And then all of a sudden, you know, we started seeing these cameras uh, in every ballpark and in every spring training facility in baseball. 
And other teams wanted the Astros' people, too. After 2018, 20% of all the openings in baseball for coaching staff and upper-level management were filled by Astros' employees. Other teams were coming and taking our people. People wanted the Astros' employees because they saw how successful we were. 20 years ago, outsiders like Jeff Luno didn't have much of a prayer of breaking into the baseball industry. Its executives were a homogenous group, largely composed of people who had themselves played baseball. Now the game's upper management is homogenous again, in that they largely look like Jeff Luno. According to a 2020 ESPN.com article, the percentage of Ivy League graduates running clubs' baseball operations departments has risen from 3% to 43% in two decades. The percentage of them who'd attended top 25 colleges had jumped from 24% to 67%. Does it seem like every team in the league is, is now like the Astros? I would say it's hard for me to exactly comment on that because I don't know the inner workings of other teams, but I do know all the other general managers, and I've spoken to them. I understand a little bit about their mindset, and I also have seen how people have been hired. And, um, yeah, I think a team would be foolish to disregard using economics, using mathematics, using science to help their team figure out Um, how to assist the human beings playing the game on the field to be the best they can be. And it's not just baseball. It's happening in basketball. It's happening in soccer. It's happening in hockey. And it happens in industry. Even the commissioner's office, under Rob Manfred, now prioritizes a big business profit-maximizing efficiency. Manfred has shown that he wants to fully leverage the antitrust exemption his league was granted a century ago, as well as the passion and loyalty of fans who continue to consume his product. After he became commissioner, Manfred even hired McKinsey, Jeff Luno's old consulting firm, to advise on the restructuring he wanted to do, and fired many employees. And Manfred has plans to bring the entire sport under his league's management, says Maury Brown. Once baseball takes over the minor leagues, and they're going to take it over, it will be Major League Baseball controlling the idea of baseball from cradle to grave the Little Leagues, the Minor Leagues, Major Leagues, all the way into the Hall of Fame. And it will be largely controlled by one entity, a huge monopoly. In some ways, Manfred got the perfect ending to the 2020 season. The club that the Astros beat in the 2017 World Series won. And strike three! Dodgers have won it all in 2020! Due to COVID, there weren't many fans in the stadium. But as Manfred prepared to hand over the trophy to the Dodgers, the 11,000 who were there let the commissioner know how they felt about him. 2020 is going to be remembered But booing Rob Manfred is unlikely to change anything. As for the teams themselves, as Jeff Luno says, with ever more money at stake and ever more powerful tools at teams' disposal, the temptation to find an edge will only grow. Technology is going to continue to advance. Clubs are going to continue to seek edges. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there's 29 front offices that are trying to figure out a way to gain an edge. And, you know, technology can always be used for good purposes, and it can also be used for bad purposes. And we can't stop progress. We're never going to stop progress. When incentives are this powerful and there's this much money at stake, you can't stop people from compromising their ethics and their morals to try and gain an edge. 
Luno knows what his legacy is now, but he thinks that one day it'll become something else. I think we're going to look back at this with the exception of the cheating scandal and think that this was a a time when baseball really changed and took a step forward into a new technology world that uh, has now become, you know, part of how teams operate. With the exception of the cheating scandal, as Luno says, that was the story I had always told about the Astros. In my articles in Sports Illustrated and in my book, Astro Ball. It was exciting. It was new. It was intoxicating. It was about a terrible team that had leveraged modern technologies and strategies to become a winning machine. And the Astros' approach did result in a lot of good. It helped give some players whose skills had been previously mismeasured a chance, and others to unlock hidden talents and find success they might not have anywhere else. It opened up the good old boys club that was Major League Baseball. It brought a championship to a beleaguered city that had been longing for one for 56 years. But all the while, I hadn't stopped to think about the costs of ruthless efficiency. The things you can lose on the way to achieving it. I told you before, I was impressed with the Astros, and it didn't occur to me that maybe the most perfect version of a winning organization isn't the best version. That there's real value, unquantifiable in any algorithm, in imperfection, in unpredictability, in humanity, and in ethics, as inefficient as they sometimes are. And I didn't stop to think about who ultimately gains from ruthless efficiency, especially in a zero-sum game. It's generally not the players whose talents become assets to be acquired as cheaply as possible. It's not the fans whose passion, often handed down from their fathers and mothers, becomes something to be monetized. It's not the institution, the sport, which becomes an actuarial problem to be solved. An approach that often leads to tactics that are effective, like the infield shift, but less fun to watch. The real point of ruthless efficiency is to divert as much of the wealth the industry creates as possible to the very few people who control it. And for many of them, no level of efficiency, no amount of profit, no amount of winning is ever enough. Jeff Luno knows a return to baseball might be unlikely for him. But his suspension ended with the conclusion of the 2020 World Series, and he wants to return to the sport. After all, his former manager, A.J. Hinch, who knew about his club sign-stealing, got called to schedule a job interview half an hour after his suspension expired with the World Series final out. Today is a great and exciting day for the Detroit Tigers and all its fans. I'm very happy uh, to announce that we brought on board to the Detroit Tigers to serve as our new manager and lead our team into the future, A.J. Hinch. A week after that, Hinch's old bench coach, who not only knew about the Astros' sign-stealing scheme, but helped coordinate it, was also welcomed back. Meanwhile, we have breaking news just into our newsroom from the world of Major League Baseball. The Boston Red Sox have rehired former manager Alex Cora, that according to multiple reports. Then there's Mike Bolsinger the pitcher you met at the very beginning of this podcast, the one who ran into the Astros' cheating scheme at its peak in August of 2017, and who they obliterated, and who never pitched another inning in the big leagues. 
For obvious reasons, Bolsinger's very skeptical of the way that the business of the game he loves has developed. Let's be honest, you start, you're starting to see baseball get a, maybe a little bit too smart for itself. You know, you can get guys with no baseball background and had studied at some big college, maybe economics or something like that, and they're getting to be scouts and they're getting front office jobs and organizations. Maybe that's it. Baseball's evolving in a, in a, in a way that maybe it shouldn't be. I've seen people call Bolsinger a crybaby, saying he sucked anyway, and that the Astros would have beaten him up that night with or without their trash can. Maybe that's true. Maybe it would have been the last night of his major league career, no matter what. But the Astros robbed him of the chance of finding out fairly. Maybe, just maybe, he could have started a run of success that night that might still be going. But Bolsinger hasn't given up on finding his way back to the game. Do you miss playing? Do you miss being in the big leagues? Would you want to go back if you could? I still throw every day because I don't know if there's ever going to be a, a shot. So I, I have a net in my, my, in my garage. I put it out front. My neighbors, some of my neighbors sit out there and watch me. I still play catch every day because I don't know, maybe maybe there'll be another opportunity in Japan, maybe Korea. I don't know. Um, uh, who knows about the United States? It's just, if there's any sort of opportunity I can get playing baseball, um, anywhere I'm going to take it. And, you know, I still feel like I have something left that I can pitch for the next couple of years. And I'll just play catch in my front and my kid just kind of watches me play catch and I have a bucket of balls or else I'll throw into the net and my kid will go grab it and throw it back and that's <laughs> kind of what I'm doing. So you still love it? Uh, yeah, I, I really do. It's, I mean, it's something that you've done your whole life. You know, I've been doing this f- forever. That's all I, I really know. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, if I need to go work, you know, I graduate college, I have a degree. I, You know, I, I work hard. I like to work hard. So I have no problem going to work, but I still feel like for some reason there's an opportunity out there and I don't want to stop throwing and then have someone call me and me not be ready. I'd rather be ready if someone's going to give me a call. That call may never come. Or it could come from the man who in late October officially became baseball's newest owner. Mets fans, they can celebrate. A new era has officially arrived. The bidding for the New York Mets came down to two groups. According to the New York Daily News, one of them, led by Alex Rodriguez and his fiancée Jennifer Lopez, was eliminated when the commissioner and the league's other owners learned that A-Rod had consulted with baseball's newest persona non grata, Jeff Luno. So that left the other bidder, the one whose offer happened to come in at a record of nearly $2.5 billion, and who would instantly become baseball's wealthiest owner by a huge margin. Commissioner Rob Manfred said he hoped this bidder would be approved without delay. All I'm going to say on that one, John, is we're going to try to process this as quickly as possible. The Mets' new owner was quickly approved much faster than Jim Crane had been. The New York Mets have been sold to a really rich guy. Got money to burn. He's a huge Mets fan. He's 63 years of age. Got nothing else to prove. So why not win some championships? So as a result... He's a hedge fund manager who's always been interested in baseball. His name is Stephen A. Cohen. 
Astral World, Astral World is the wonderful world of fun, fun, fun. The Edge is presented by Prologue Projects in partnership with Cadence 13. The show is produced by Sam Lee and me, Ben Ryder, with editorial support from Madeline Kaplan and Ula Kulpa. Our executive producers are Leon Nafok, Andrew Parsons, Chris Corcoran, and Stephen Fisher. Our score is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Additional music by Little Cheddar and Billy Libby. Our theme song is by Andy Christens. Our credit music this week is the Astro World Jingle by Dini Hoffines Anton. Our artwork is designed by Teddy Blanks. Fact checking by Francis Carr. Special thanks to Julie Conquest, Hilary Schupf, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and everyone at Cadence 13. Ken Druckerman, Pete Ross, Hanan Sarhan, and Timothy Duffy at Left Right. Charlie Finch, Michael Jeffries, Jody Avergan, Josh Levine, Julia Henderson, Nina Ernest, Alexia Badat, Ed Claris, Peter Yazzie, and a very special thanks to Alice Ryder, Madeline Ryder, and Celia Ryder. This is the end of Season 1 of The Edge. If you've liked what you heard, it would mean a lot to us if you'd tell your friends and rate and review our show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.